Okay, I'll level with you. I had like a whole episode in the can for this week, but then the Titanic submersible thing happened, and now all I can think about is the fucking submersible. I'm like revealing too much about myself at work by opening conversations with, hello, have you heard about the lost submersible? And of course, everyone has been paying attention to it in one way or another because it's impossible to avoid, but I accidentally traumatized my coworker by explaining how ocean pressure worked. So that's kind of where I'm at. That is to say, like, I need to write something about how this has played out so that I don't continue to expose my colleagues to my capacity for macabre thought loops when they're simply trying to get through the day. With that in mind, I'm Alex. This is Pop Culture Boner, the podcast edition, and today I'm thinking about the Ocean Gate submersible. Okay, so I'll say up top, this is a pop culture podcast. I'm not about to sit down and become an armchair expert in the specifics of ocean submersible engineering and safety. But I do think any time that something like this totally dominates a news cycle at the expense of all other things, it becomes inherently relevant to a lot of what we try to cover on this podcast. With the sheer amount of information being forced into our eyeballs at all times, the things that we pick up and run with are those that capture our collective imagination in some way, and I'm interested in why that is. I think there's a few factors at play here. Our enduring fascination with the Titanic, the catastrophic impact of the Silicon Valley attitude of, like, move fast and break things, the seemingly Hollywood-inspired hope that they would still be alive, the warp speed sort of news-to-joke to moralizing cycle on social media, the instantaneous appearance of a conspiracy mindset, uh, and of course the James Cameron of it all. This is taking up like a lot of space in my brain, as I'm sure it is yours, uh, so I thought we could do a little walkthrough together to try and understand our feelings and potentially soothe our horror in some way. So my theory on why this has become such a runaway story has to do with the kind of cognitive dissonance that starts to build up when you receive too much information about something all at the same time. I see it a lot in online discourse. Everything happens so much and then suddenly no one can string together a coherent thought. Uh, I think the easiest way to illustrate this is to kind of walk through the timeline of events of the last week. On Sunday the 18th of June, OceanGate, a private company providing crude submersibles for tourism, exploration and research, launched its 22-foot submersible Titan to begin a descent to view the wreckage of the Titanic, almost four kilometres beneath the surface of the North Atlantic Ocean. An hour and 45 minutes into their descent, the Polar Prince, the Canadian expedition ship from which they had deployed, reported that they had lost contact with the submersible. A rescue effort was launched from Boston, with import from the US and Canadian navies, as well as several commercial firms in the vicinity. On the 19th of June, the 24-hour news cycle really latched onto the coverage, and it was reported that at the time of its launch, the craft had an emergency four-day supply of oxygen and was estimated to have between 70 and 96 hours remaining. The five passengers aboard the submersible included British billionaire Hamish Harding, Pakistani millionaire Shahzada Dawood and his son Suleiman, French maritime expert Paul-Henri Najile, and Ocean Gate founder Stockton Rush. 
The passengers had paid a whopping $250,000 for a seat on the submersible. On finding out that the people aboard had paid an exorbitant amount of money to get in a tin can with limited oxygen that was sealed from the outside to shoot themselves directly to the bottom of the ocean, the digital commentariat responded by launching into the joke cycle that often comes with these things. There were gleeful mentions of the pod of orcas that's currently sinking yachts off the coast of Gibraltar, the ghosts of the Titanic, and video game controllers being used to pilot. And of course, there was pushback on the jokes. Now, jokes about death and dying are fairly common in my family for reasons that are probably obvious once you start to tally up the number of near misses in the bloodline. I've broken both my arms twice, both my ankles, one of them twice, and had my shoulder sewn back together, and I'm not even high on the list of familial disaster zones. We're not daredevils, we just kind of lack spatial awareness and an ability to adapt to our environment. We also as a family have been known to quietly cheer when nature gets her own back. Tourist standing too close to a bison in Yellowstone National Park gets tossed like a ragdoll. Shouldn't have stood so close to the bison. Eaten by a bear while Timothy treadwelling it up in Alaska? That's God's favourite killing machine. You don't need to hang out with it. Gored by a bull at the running of the bulls in Spain? Good. Well deserved. The point is, I'm not a good gauge of what's appropriate when it comes to joking about death, and I also inherently believe that most people's inability to comprehend our insignificance in the face of natural phenomena leads us to untimely but ultimately predictable ends. So, take everything I say with a grain of salt, I suppose. While I didn't make jokes, mostly because I'm not very funny on Twitter, I do completely get the impulse. Sometimes the hubris of man just adds a little something, you know? More people have been on the moon than have been to the deepest parts of the ocean. The audacity to think that your money can keep you from nature is laughable. However, I think when there is an incident like this, there's that point where you reach a critical mass of event information, and the online discourse starts to devour itself like a snake eating its own tail. This started on Tuesday the 20th of June for this particular incident. Throughout the day, banging sounds were picked up by Canadian aircraft, which potentially indicated that the crew were alive and trapped. On the same day, the New York Times published a piece revealing that the maritime community had expressed deep concerns about the safety of the Ocean Gate submersibles, and the company had actually been sued by a former employee for wrongful termination after he encouraged further safety testing. Old footage of an interview with CBS News began making the rounds on Twitter, showing the size of the inside of the sub, the wireless Logitech controller steering it, and the fact that the paperwork passengers had to sign was essentially waiving their right to complain if they died or were otherwise traumatised. The journalist behind that piece came forward and said that the sub had technical problems on the same day that they were aboard and briefly lost contact with the ship. Best not to ask any follow-up questions about why that wasn't a red flag that the journalist raised high afterwards, but I digress. At the same time that this was happening, the stepson of billionaire Hamish Harding posted photos of himself on social media at a Blink-182 concert, saying that his family would want him to enjoy the show in these trying times. He also quote-tweeted a photo from an OnlyFans model, implying that he would like to sleep with her. 
By Wednesday the 21st of June, rapper Cardi B had taken him to task on Twitter and he deleted his tweets. It was also revealed over the course of this spat that he had been charged with armed robbery and online stalking of a woman in the EDM scene. Also on the 21st, the New York Times published another piece confirming that OceanGate CEO Stockton Rush's wife was a descendant of Isidore and Ida Strauss, two passengers who died aboard the Titanic in 1912, which also makes her related to musician King Princess. Of course, none of this really has anything to do with the sub, but it gives you a bit of an understanding of how quickly we reached an information tipping point. As all this was happening, several American cable news outlets started showing perpetual oxygen countdown clocks running over their coverage, and the online discourse had reached a sort of meta state. With each new piece of information, the shaky foundation holding any discussion of the subject together started to collapse. As quotes emerged from Stockton Rush repeatedly iterating that those raising safety concerns were standing in the way of innovation, and people learned more about how the pressure of the deep sea can liquefy a human body like it's a blender, the more people began to feel uncomfortable with the number of jokes being made. But when you have that happening alongside the antisocial stepson of a billionaire trying to grift his way into meeting Tom DeLonge, or the pop star descendant of a 1912 Titanic victim posting TikToks about the ghosts of their ancestors claiming the submersible, it's really hard to keep focus. It's simply too much information. People evolved from making jokes or scolding people for making jokes to insinuating that doing so was either morally righteous or morally bankrupt. Not only that, there also became this desperate need to show that making jokes was actually a proof point for your impeccable leftist politics. People pointed out that a migrant boat carrying 750 refugees, including around 100 children and teenagers, sank off the coast of Greece on the 14th of June, just days before the Titan submersible launched. 104 people survived. 84 bodies were recovered at the scene, and there is increasing evidence to suggest that the Greek Coast Guard may have had a hand in capsizing the boat. At the very least, they did little to help. And they've previously been known to arrest volunteer captains who escort ships across to provide assistance in the case of such tragedies. Why, came the cries of the commentariat, would we weep for billionaires on a tin can when the world can't even pay attention to the nearly 600 refugees that we just lost to the waves? Not a bad point, but a sentiment I would be less suspect of if it weren't coming in the context of winning brownie points in an internet argument about what exactly was meant by the phrase, eat the rich. Then came people trying to explain why people would make jokes, a discourse on the discourse. Joshua Doss, who goes by Applied Science 11 on TikTok, is a good example. He asks people to follow the thought. If millions of working class people have no empathy for five rich people dying at the bottom of the ocean, what could have happened? He suggests that people are unable to access the things that they need to live, and more importantly, they're not stupid. They know their wages have stayed low because the people that own these companies want to keep ramping up their profits, and people on the Titan submersible have simply become an emblem of that. Again, not a totally unconvincing argument. Out of interest, I kind of looked up the number of people that had visited the Challenger Deep, which is the deepest point of the Mariana Trench. 
Uh, almost every single one of those fuckers was a former CEO or a real estate investor. Uh, most of them had been to space as well. One of them was Hamish Harding. I did feel my blood pressure shoot up just a little bit reading it. But I do think that Joshua's theory is giving quite a lot of grace to something that really amounts to rubbernecking at rubberneckers, basically. Then, on Thursday the 22nd of June, about six hours after the air supply was estimated to have run out, the US Coast Guard announced that a debris field had been located near the wreck of the Titanic, consistent with a catastrophic loss of pressure in the vessel that resulted in an implosion and the instantaneous deaths of all five people aboard the Titan. As part of the statement from the US Coast Guard, it was revealed that a sound consistent with an implosion had been picked up on Sunday, which added to the growing list of questions and criticisms. Why was there a rescue operation reportedly worth $6.5 million if they already suspected that the sub had imploded? Why was the sub allowed to operate at all if there were so many known issues with its design? What was the banging, if not people? And what happens next? At the moment, there aren't a lot of satisfying answers. According to the Wall Street Journal, the search continued partially because they couldn't be completely sure that the sound they found on Sunday was actually an implosion, and partially because the US Navy wanted to keep the extent of its sub-detection capabilities a secret. OceanGate was allowed to keep operating, in short, because they largely do so in international waters where there are less regulations. There will be an investigation similar to a plane crash, But there's not really a precedent for this type of thing. There have only been like four successful submarine rescues ever. It's just not something that happens very often. And in regard to the banging, the ocean is vast and the banging is none of our business. You would think with a tragic conclusion secured that the world would move on. But then, of course, the James Cameron of it all... Uh, A lot of people seemed surprised when James Cameron suddenly appeared on TV in a BMX biking shirt to talk about all the ways that the Titan could have failed. It's another one of those factors that really accelerated the discourse again. It's hard to feel serious when the director of the 1997 classic Titanic is suddenly on the news for what is essentially an engineering problem. Why would James Cameron be giving engineering advice? Uh, Well, as it turns out, Jim has visited the wreck of the Titanic at least 30 times. Uh, He's a girly with a special interest. (laughs) Uh, He was also the second ever person to pilot a submersible to the Challenger Deep and the first person to do it solo. He's also directed several documentaries about deep sea exploration. He yearns for the deep. Drop him back into the trench. Free him. Uh, In all seriousness, if you watch some of them, you can see that, first of all, being underwater is just kind of his thing, Uh, and second of all, that he cares really deeply about the safety of the technology. He talks extensively about the engineering, he stops shoots when things go wrong, and he talks about the process of actually fixing them. And he brings along actual scientists to determine how to maximise the scientific value of his undertaking. What can be learned from working in an extreme environment? Where is best to collect samples? How can we improve the process? He's kind of the exact opposite of the mindset that's held by the people who run OceanGate. People, quite rightly, have asked what could possibly be gained by taking people four kilometres underwater to look at what amounts to a gravesite that's already been so thoroughly explored that it has a 3D map that was made last year. 
Now, I do have a Titanic horror slash fascination inherited from my mother. Mum saw an old Titanic film way too young and it thoroughly traumatised her, so she did what any good parent would do and passed that directly on to me by buying a seven-year-old an encyclopedia of Titanic facts, thus ensuring that I was a weird kid at school and that 25 years later, in the midst of an eerily similar set of events, a weird kid at work. Part of what is fascinating about the Titanic is that there's this like decadent vessel rediscovered almost by accident. And such large pieces of it are still intact in such a desolate environment. It's like discovering an abandoned mansion on Mars, kind of. James Cameron compared deep sea exploration to a lunar environment, and I think the contrast between the vision of an early 1900s opulence and alien decay is also part of the allure. And while it seems unhinged that you can just pay to be in outer space, or the underwater equivalent, I guess, I would rather it be James Cameron thinking about the nature of the alien on Earth and delighting in the fact that he tricked Hollywood into funding it, as he did in 2009, than it be a bucket list check for rich people who get to take their weird obsession to its most extreme end, frankly. Now we're at the end of the timeline, and it's time for me to kind of think about why I actually wrote this episode. If I'm being honest, it's because I'm normally quite sensitive, but I didn't really feel a whole lot about the submersible beyond a kind of morbid fascination. The idea of running out of oxygen at the bottom or on the surface of the ocean in a sealed up tube made me feel kind of queasy, but as soon as the signal was lost, I pretty much assumed that they were dead. My heart did break a little bit when I learned that 19-year-old Suleiman Dawood had been frightened to go on the trip. Um, but then just ended up going because it fell over Father's Day and he wanted to appease his dad. But mostly I'm just kind of glad it was quick, you know? There's a really great video from Hank Green that explains how quick it was, if you want to feel better about that. Uh, His phrasing was something along the lines of, at that point you're not really biology anymore, you become physics, which is kind of comforting. But while I was researching this, Rax King, who is an author that I really adore, posted a piece on her Patreon. Um, I'll link the Patreon in my show notes, but you should also buy her book, Tacky, which is fantastic. Anyway, she wrote about the submersible and sort of straddling the fence between those doing the laughing and those lecturing them. She rightly points out that the sanctimonious political stuff is sort of bullshit. The wealth isn't getting redistributed just because someone died in an accident. But I really loved the last lines about the ever-widening gap between the ultra-rich and the average person. I won't read much of it because it's behind a paywall and I would recommend that you subscribe, but in talking about the ways that rich people section themselves off, she says, quote, This is all the best stuff that money can buy and it all sucks. It doesn't work or it kills you. What's the point? End quote. And truly, what's the point? The people on the Titan weren't exploring anything new. They were simply paying to stare into the void. And this time, the void blinked. Well, uh, that is my submersible take. Honestly, I haven't been able to stop thinking about the migrant boat off the coast of Greece. Uh, It's completely broken my heart. 
I'll be making a small donation to some organisations that assist asylum seekers, uh, specifically the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre and the Refugee Advice and Casework Service. I would encourage you to look up something similar in your area. Otherwise, to end on our usual light-hearted note, uh, if you'd like to talk to me about the survivors of the original sinking of the Titanic in 1912, and you're prepared for me to get a little intense, uh, talk to me about it next time you see me at the pub. Peace. This episode of Pop Culture Burner was written and recorded by Alex Johnson and produced and edited by Wesley Fay. The theme song is also by Wesley. Special thanks for this episode go to the award-winning Logitech G F710 wireless gamepad. Check out popcultureburner.com for full episode notes and sources. Pop Culture Burner is produced on the stolen lands of the Wongal and Wurundjeri Woiwurrung peoples and we honour and respect them and all First Peoples as the traditional custodians of the lands we live and work on.